Welcome, everybody. I want to welcome those of you who are in the room, those of you who are here in our live service, those of you who are watching online. Thanks for checking us out, as well as our classic people. You are wonderful. And our Moon Campus, thank you for being so great and for being a part of this. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of it. My name is Jason Martin. It's an honor for me to continue our Mark teaching series called Follow. And I'm looking forward to what God has for us at this time today. A couple weeks ago, I was visiting someone in our congregation and I was sitting in a room that uh, was next to a hallway, a busy hallway with people walking by. And at one point, a woman stepped uh, out of the hall into the doorway and she said, I had to stop. Uh, She said, I was walking back and forth and I saw you sitting on the chair. And she said, I have to say, I'm Catholic and I know that Easter is coming, but I saw you sitting there and it appears that Jesus Christ is alive and well and walking among us. (laughs) And I smiled and laughed a little bit because I'm always a little unsure of what I should say when that comparison is made. (laughs) And then she said, now I really need to be good. Now I really need to have good behavior. And And I looked at her And I continued to smile, and with the voice of God, I said, yeah, you do. (laughs) Thankfully, she smiled as she walked away. Now, that might be the first time that I've ever been given the two-name treatment, Jesus and Christ. That might have been the first time, but it was not the first time that someone has made that comparison as silly as it is, has made that comparison and then followed it up with a confession. This is not the first time that they followed up with a confession that they need to watch what they're doing. They need to make sure that they're being good. Or like the lady who leaned into the doorway, be, uh, you know, behaving themselves. It's not the first time. Now, I do not, uh, I, I don't share that story to, to try and draw any comparisons between myself and Jesus. That is an invitation for embarrassment. So that is not why I share that. I do not, I do not share that to draw, to draw a comparison, but I do want to draw attention to something. I want to draw attention to what I think is a very common, very pervasive, very troubling way that we think about God. There is something in us, for some of us, it's every now and then. For some of us, it's all the time. There is something in us that believes that God is somehow, in various ways, out to get us. That Jesus is monitoring our behavior. And when he's around, at least, we better be at our best. And wrapped into this belief or this assumption is what I would call an unhealthy fear of God. I'm not talking about the fear of the Lord that the scriptures speak of. I'm talking about the idea of being afraid of God. Jess serves on our production team. If you're interested in serving on our production team here at Pathway, by the way, please let me know. We'd be happy to have you serve in our production ministry. But that being aside, Jess serves on our production team and she uh, has a sticker on her computer It is a picture of Jesus leaning in from the corner of of the computer, and next to his face is a caption that says, I saw that. (laughs) It's a funny little meme, but it is awfully uh, 
consistent or it relates to what I'm talking about here. It perpetuates an idea of God that we all tend to have at certain times, an idea that we all tend to hold on to. Among all the things that we may get wrong about Jesus, among all the things that we might get wrong about Jesus, the idea that he is someone that we should be afraid of might be the most harmful. And the main reason why is because fear is not compatible with faith. Fear cannot hold hands with faith. It cannot be in the same room. Fear not only challenges our faith, it clouds it. It often replaces our faith. Fear tells us that faith isn't invited. Fear tells faith it's not invited, and the opposite is true as well. As followers of God, we would do well to repent of that fear of being afraid of God, from our tendency to be afraid of God and instead turn to faith in God. I know this is easier said than done. Trust me. I know that I'm not just saying this as if it's like we're going to flip a switch. For some of us, this has been a lifelong struggle that God is out to get me, and we are afraid of God. We are afraid of Jesus. This is something I believe, though, that Mark wants to address in his gospel, in the stories that we're going to look at today. I've titled this message, The Fears That Fracture. The Fears That Fracture, because I believe that if we do not fight the fears in our life, they will do their part to fracture our faith. Fear will have its way if we do not fight it. Please turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 4, or if you have a scripture journal, you can find that on uh, page 28. You can look on page 28 of your scripture journal. Mark chapter 4. From the beginning of his gospel, Mark has been describing how Jesus has been ushering in his kingdom. From the outset, in Mark 1, we read how Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Jesus says, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. From that point on, his healings, his teachings, his demonstrations of authority, all the things that Jesus has been doing, Jesus has been showing us what God's kingdom looks like. His kingdom-building activities demonstrate authority over the kingdoms of this world, whether it's the religious powers that he interacts with or the political empires that he comes in contact with. Jesus' kingdom, in many ways, is upside down. It's profoundly different from the kingdoms of this world. And not only is he showing what God's kingdom looks like, but he is also showing us what the citizens of God's kingdom look like. Last week, as we looked at the uh, beginning of chapter 4, we saw the parables that Jesus taught and the parables concerning how, how we should receive his words. He is describing those who have the ears to hear what he is saying. My hope is that today we would have the ears to hear what God might want to say to us about fear. Because if the kingdom of God is anything at all, if the kingdom of God is anything at all, it is at least fearless. It's fearless. 
and even maybe especially our fears of God. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus has been teaching all day. He's been teaching all day, and as evening comes, he decides that it's time to go to the other side of the lake. It's time to move on. Already in the boat, he asks his disciples to go across the lake. And this is where we pick up our story in verse 35 of chapter 4. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. So Jesus had already been in the boat. That's what that verse is saying. He'd already been teaching in the boat. You probably saw that last week in the previous text in Mark chapter 4. He was already in the boat. He's already there. So let's just stay there. Let's go to the other side rather than have to go on land and interact with the crowds. We're going we're gonna to escape for a little bit. Verse 37, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Mark says that when evening came, Jesus left the crowd along with his disciples, as well as the other boats that were with him, and headed to the other side of the lake, and then a storm hits. A storm so bad that the waves are breaking over the side of the boat and filling up the bottom with water. When I was in high school, I was invited by my grandpa to go salmon fishing in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Oregon. We did not encounter a storm that day, but that didn't stop me from throwing up. <laughs> it was windy enough. The waves were high enough for the boat to go up off the sea and splash down on the water enough times for it to make my stomach sick. I was not used to that kind of water. But those traveling with Jesus were not new to stormy waters. Although they were probably concerned of the storm, they knew what to do. What they didn't understand is how their teacher was sleeping in the stern of the boat, seemingly unconcerned. And Mark gives us a subtle detail that helps us understand that Jesus didn't just pass out of exhaustion on the side of the boat. He said that he, had, he was sleeping on a cushion, which means that he intended to go to sleep. He was resting, and he was resting well. He pulled out a pillow for his nap. And you know what that's like. There's a difference between falling asleep on the couch on a Sunday afternoon and going into the bedroom, pulling back the covers, and climbing into bed. Jesus wanted to rest and rest well. And for some reason, he was able to do it. But before we keep reading, uh, let us rest with Jesus for a moment as the waters are coming into the boat. Why is he sleeping and how? Well, for one, I hate to point out the obvious, he's tired. He's had a long day of teaching and he is human after all. And Mark will make a point 
to acknowledge that Jesus is human. And this is one way that we see that. It should not be ignored that Jesus, the Son of God, is human like you and I. We need our sleep. He identifies with us in our sleep. In fact, because he sleeps in a storm, it's what makes it possible that we can experience that kind of rest. Let me try and explain that. What comes across as Jesus being absent, we discover how even in sleep, Jesus demonstrates that he is in fact with us and that he cares for us. It is precisely because he is sleeping in the middle of a storm that we see him resting in the God who never sleeps. The God who has not lost his way. The God who has not forgotten about us. The God who is not absent. And this is the fear that we must fight, the fear of God's absence. We've all been there. We've all been in situations that threaten to sink us. And we question whether or not God is present. It's as if he, either he is not around or he is not able to stop the sinking. And this is what seems to concern the disciples. So they wake him and ask, Teacher, do you not care that we are drowning? Do you not care? Rather than say, the Son of God is sleeping in our boat. What can mere storms do to us? <laughs> Teacher, do you not care that we are drowning? They question whether or not he cares, and that is a fair question, because if we're honest, we've all asked it probably more than once. Do you care that I am drowning? The only way we can wrestle rightly with that fear is if we hold those two realities at one time, the valid concern of his absence with the conviction of his unfailing love. The only way that we'll be able to wrestle with that fear is holding those two realities in our hand at once. The valid concern of his absence, because you and I have been there, we know what it feels like when God feels absent, holding it with the conviction of his unfailing love. This is how the psalmist prays in Psalm 44 when he confronts a God who seemed absent, who seems unconcerned, and even asleep. Awake, Lord, the psalmist says. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. Does that prayer not sound like the disciples? Do you not care for us? And the psalmist ends on that note, rescue us because of your unfailing love. Do you see how the psalmist concludes on the foundation of God's unfailing love? We will do well to begin at the end. Because God's love will not fail me. What seems like his absence is actually an invitation to seek him, to find him, 
and to remember just how present he is. When we do this, we will not confuse what feels like God's absence with the idea that God doesn't love us. We must remember that God's love is unfailing, and we must begin with that. Though Jesus sleeps, he does not stay asleep. After waking up, he arose. I love that. As the King James Version says, he arose and rebuked the wind. Similarly to how he casts out the unclean spirit in chapter 1 with just a few words. In fact, the very same words, Jesus demonstrates his power over the storm. And also similar to the synagogue, he is doing more than just a miracle. He is revealing his authority over the power structures of this world. In the synagogue, it is the religious powers that seem to hold control over who has access to God. In the storm, it is the powers of life and death, and he demonstrates he holds the keys to both. His kingdom building is a process in the synagogue. It's in process in the synagogue. It's in process on the sea and all the stops in between. And everything he does surprises the people along the way. It should not surprise us then that he is doing the same thing in us, that he can do the same thing in us, that there will be times when it feels like he is absent, but it is an opportunity to seek him and to remember that he cares and he is present. But in order for us to receive that rightly, we must have the ears to hear. I believe that hearing is possible when we consider all of who Jesus is. Not just the one who sleeps, but the one who rises up to speak. Though he might seem absent, he is more than present. It may, it may feel like he does not care about us, but he is the God of unfailing love. That is a promise, that is a guarantee. If we're not afraid, when it feels to us like God is absent, it means we won't be afraid of him being present in ways that we might not expect. But again, the disciples are not yet able to receive that with faith. Instead, they are afraid. And what's interesting to me, is that Mark mentions their fear, that they are afraid after the storm is gone. He says they are afraid when the storm is gone and the waters are peaceful. When everything is at peace, when you think they'd be celebrating, they are cowering in fear. They may have been fearful in the chaos of the storm, but it is when they are confronted by the power of Jesus is when they are truly afraid. And this is another fear that we must fight, the fear of God's power. Jesus is the one who rises. Jesus is the one who speaks peace, the one who speaks life. He is the one who awakes from sleep to overpower the chaos of the sea. He is the one who rises from the dead to overwhelm the powers of darkness. And yet in the quietness of this still sea, 
the disciples question who this man is. They've already seen miracles, but it seems now at this point they are recognizing that there is nothing that this man cannot do. No power he cannot overcome. And that can be both exciting and terrifying. The longer they know him, the better they will understand and realize that the wind and the sea don't just obey Jesus in this moment, but the wind and the sea have always been in obedience to God. Listen to what God says to Job, who also had questions of his own. Then the Lord said to, spoke to Job out of the storm. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. He says in verse 8 of chapter 38, Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb? And as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness, for I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores, I said, This far and no farther will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. Jesus is the God who has always been sovereign over the seas. And he is over the seas and creation. And if that is true, he is truly all-powerful. I think there's a part of us that says we are not afraid of God's power. We genuinely long for it. We pray for it. We desire God to do miracles. We desire that God would intervene. We want his power to overcome evil. We, we long for his power to, to step in in our place. There's nothing to be afraid of there, right? Except if we understand, and I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm still trying to wrap my own head around this, so just bear with me. But if we understand God's power, if we understand what that means and how it is a power that is all good, and it is a power that is working all things together for good, and it is a power that is more than good, that brings more good that we can understand, then if we are truly not afraid of that power, if we are truly not afraid of the power of God, then it will, then it will mean that we are not afraid of death. We will not be afraid of death. And that is our problem. Because we are collectively afraid of death. If we weren't afraid of death, we wouldn't love money as much as we do. We wouldn't grab for our own power as often as we do. We wouldn't cling to this life in the ways that we so often do. But when we fight against being afraid of God's power over death, we'll be able to rest in him no matter the challenges that we face in life. We'll be able to recognize that those storms are always coming. God is present, sometimes creatively present in the midst of them while holding the power over them. Theologian Chris Green says, that God is not the God who will keep us from dying. He is not the God who will keep us from dying, but the God who saves us from death. His power is for good. It is not to make us afraid. 
We do not need to fear death. He continues to build his kingdom and demonstrate his power over the kingdoms of this world as we keep reading. Let's jump to chapter 5. Let's read the first five verses. So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the calmness of the sea, in the region of the Gerasenes, which is on the eastern side of the Galilean Sea. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as often he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrist and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. So they get off the sea. Jesus gets off the boat. And maybe the disciples of we don't read of the disciples here. Maybe they went off to go get food or something. But as Jesus goes on, on to land, there is a man that runs toward him, a man that has been possessed by unclean spirits, a man that the community has tried to corral, to confine with chains, with shackles, and he would consistently break free of them. It's almost like this guy has superpowers or something. They are not able to trap him. They are not able to keep him down. And so they're now in a place where he is, he is off in the tombs, where he howls about, where he wails, and where he cuts himself with stones. But from the perspective of the community, he's out there. And at this point, he might simply be a nuisance more than anything else. Verse 6. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the Spirit, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. You thought this story was odd, and it gets even stranger. Send us into these pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and enter the pigs, and the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside and the, into the lake and drowned in the water. What a sight! This is one of the strangest stories in the Bible. That being said, Mark has it here for a reason. And he wants to try and help us understand something, and I think he's continuing to help us understand not only that Jesus' kingdom is more powerful than the kingdoms of this world, but that he is also someone that we need not be afraid of. The first thing that we should consider is that names matter, especially in the context of power. Names matter in this culture and in some degree, to some degree, in, even in our day. To name something or someone is in one sense a power move. 
And at first, the possessed man tries to take the upper hand by naming Jesus, the Son of God, Most High God. But then Jesus responds by asking his own question, what is your name? He replied, Legion. This is not some filler name that Mark is using just to continue his story. Legion refers to a Roman regiment of 6,000 soldiers. Not only does it suggest the torment that this man has experienced, it also draws the readers, it draws our attention to the Israelites' oppression by the Roman Empire. We see something much bigger going on here than a man possessed by evil spirits, by spirits going into pigs. We see something much more significant even than that being told in this story. Jesus' kingdom is in conflict with the kingdoms of this world. Legion wants to stay, at least in the area. I, I don't know, I don't understand this. So they beg Jesus to let them go in the nearby pigs, and Jesus gives the spirits permission. Jesus gives the spirits permission. They go into the pigs. Now the pigs, possessed, go down the hill, off the cliff, and drown in the sea. Verse 14 says, The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, some versions say, in his right mind, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away. Leave us alone. As in the previous story where Jesus calms the storm, and Mark doesn't mention fear until the, the storm is calm. As Mark tells this story, the people are not mentioned as being afraid until the man is fully clothed of his right, man, right mind and completely calm. The people are more afraid now than when he was off living in the tombs. The kindness of Jesus sets this man free. And if we're not able to receive the kindness of the Lord rightly, at some point, we too will see it as being more disruptive to our lives than anything else. If we are not able to see the kindness of Jesus rightly, there will be times when we see it as more disruptive to our lives than anything else. This is another fear that we must fight, the fear of God's kindness. The people aren't able to see the kindness of Jesus. They see his very presence as being disruptive to their way of life. They were afraid, and so they ask him to leave. And at first glance to us, it seems odd. The kindness of God seems wonderful, especially if it's centered to me, there is nothing more incredible than God's kindness to me. It's something we long for. But the challenge is, if we play out 
If we play it out, if God is always kind, that means that he will be kind to the kind of people that, in my opinion, don't deserve it. If anyone, if anyone could have stayed in the tombs, it's this man with the unclean spirit. He should have just stayed there, right? Keep that guy away. The people may have preferred their pigs over the kindness of Jesus. So Jesus is asked to go. The late writer, poet, and civil rights activist, Dr. Maya Angelou, put it this way when she said, hope and fear can't occupy the same space. Invite one to stay. The people of the town didn't invite hope. They didn't invite faith. They didn't invite kindness to stay. Instead, they asked him to leave. They remained in fear, and that is our fight as well. Jesus is the one who sleeps, who speaks, and who saves. He is the one who dies, who rises up, and calls the people out of their tombs. As Paul says in Romans, Jesus' kindness justifies the ungodly, and unless we are focused on ourselves, it's easy to be uncomfortable with that, even afraid of what that kind of kindness might mean. When we're not afraid of the kindness of God, we will not be afraid of his kindness toward our enemies. The message of kindness is what he gives to the man. Check out verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man had been, who had been demon-possessed, begged to go with him. But Jesus said, No, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for them, and everyone was amazed at what he told them. The man is the first example of the good soil that Jesus was teaching about in chapter 4. He has the ears to hear and goes off to proclaim the kindness of Jesus to the kind of people who asked Jesus to leave. But now they are amazed at what they're hearing. When we fearlessly recognize that God is always present, always powerful, and always kind, we will be able to fearlessly love. I think that's what it means to have a healthy fear of the Lord. When we receive him rightly, we will fear nothing else. Unfortunately, we still find ourselves being afraid of God. I believe that this idea of being afraid of God has been something that may have been taught to us, something that we we just replay in our minds this idea that God is someone to be feared. Sometimes it's an effort to understand troubling Bible stories. Sometimes it's to scare the hell out of us, literally. And sometimes, most often, we are given the impression of God that we, like the lady leaning in the doorway, need to modify our behavior when we are around him because he is out to get us. But we must fight against that fear. 
and receive the perfect love of God that casts out all fears, especially our fears of him. We should feel conviction of sin. Yes, absolutely. We should repent of our lack of faith. Yes, we need to do this. There will be times when our relationship with God will hurt. I'm not saying that there's, it's a painless free faith. But because of his unfailing love, he will never harm you. He is not out to get you. And there is more good news. The fight that we fight against that fear is not our own. And it is not a fight that we fight alone. The followers of God, as followers of God, we must encourage one another toward faith so that we might fearlessly love the Lord, so that we might fearlessly love one another, so that we might fearlessly love the world around us. Let me close with these words from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. In responding to receiving the kindness of God, he's explaining how they, how he and his other apostles are, and those that are with him are fearlessly loving the church. Listen to what he says. As God's partners, he's speaking to the church here, we beg you not to accept the marvelous gift of God's kindness and ignore it. For God says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. We live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us, and no one will find fault with our ministry. In everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. We have been beaten, been put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, and gone without food. We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness by the Holy Spirit within us, and by our sincere love. We faithfully prove preach the truth. God's power is working in us. We use the weapons of righteousness in the right hand for attack and the left for defense. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us, whether they slander us or praise us. We are honest, but they call us imposters. We are ignored even though we are well known. We live close to death, but we are still alive. We have been beaten, but we have not been killed. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we have spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. Oh, dear Corinthian friends, we have spoken honestly with you, and our hearts are open to you. There is no lack of love on our part, but you have withheld your love from us. I am asking you to respond as if you were my own children. Open your hearts to us. If we can live in such a way where we recognize that God is always present, always powerful, and always kind, that means that we can fearlessly love. That means we can fearlessly live. And we can be received by God who always receives us with his unfailing love. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you, the opportunity we have to look into your scriptures. I pray that you would help us learn to receive your love rightly. Help us understand the times when it feels like you are absent, that we have an opportunity to seek and find you because we know that your love is unfailing and that you 
are a God who can be found. Help us to remember that your power is good and we do not need to fear death. Help us to remember that your kindness is always right and we can fearlessly love because you have loved us. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to gather together. May you be glorified in us as a church, as individuals. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.